there. How's it going? You know, day 582 in quarantine. It's tough. <laughs> it's really having an effect on people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's tough. I overshared at work the other day. I told everybody <laughs> about how I had a panic attack and had to, and I was at home in Vermont at the time. And my mom had to sleep with me because I truly thought I was having a heart attack. Oh. And everyone at work did not think that it was a funny story, which I did think it was. I love that you were able and felt comfortable enough to share that with your coworkers and normalize <laughs> and normalize panic attacks because maybe someone in your office was like, I've had that before too. And I've never been able to share with anyone. I feel comforted in the fact that I'm not the only one who had it. So good for you, Corinne. True. They were more just like, oh, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do to make your workday easier? And I was like, oh man, I didn't mean to. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought this was for fun, you know? <laughs> yeah. But in the moment, you definitely did not think it was for fun. No, no, no. I thought I was dying. I've had like four panic attacks during the pandemic and usually I only get like one or two a year. Yeah. It's, it's a Oy tough vey. time. Tough time for people. But we can do this. We can get through it. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's also a lot of cake in this tunnel. So I'm enjoying that part of this. <laughs> I thought you were totally going to segue into the light at the end of the tunnel is death. And this is a story, <laughs> a podcast about ghosts. Oh, I wish I had. That's so smart. Instead, I'm dreaming about my cake that I've just made. And I can't wait to eat it for dinner. That's appreciated. And we are going to take a break, a quick break in the middle of this podcast because we're recording at an odd time. So I do expect to see some cake when we return <laughs> for the second half of this episode. We had to take a break because I, Nick and I have started bell training Leia to know when she can eat because she used to just like meow at us all the time for food. And we're like, let's bell train her. We also put her on a diet. So that's a whole other thing. But let's <laughs> play a certain sound on our phones every time that she can eat. And so you'll be witness to it. Yeah, she has her, her dinner time. It's dinner time. And it works really well. She's great. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hello. And I'm Sabrina. And Leia is wandering in the background. You'll hear her throughout the episode. She will make an appearance for sure when it's dinner time. Oh, sweet little Leia. I can't wait to see her live out her little Pavlov dog opportunity. It's the Deanna Rogazuli cat. That's what we're, what we're naming it. Yeah, that's what we called it last time. That's right. Because that's a very easy, not a lot of words thing to say. <laughs> not a lot of words thing to say. Spending all day on Zoom is quite exhausting. I know. Video fatigue is real. Mm-hmm. And they say that the blue light is bad for your skin. For my skin? Yeah. What's it doing to my skin? I don't know. Isn't everything bad for you? True. But I've put my computer on night mode so that the light, the blue light is not coming through. I've downloaded this app called Flux onto my computer. And that is good at getting blue light out. So if anyone out there is concerned and doesn't know about it, it's free. And it works well. And it basically, like, based on your geographical location, it will go down as the sun goes down in your spot. So when it's sunset or sunrise, your computer screen will get a whole lot more yellow. But you can also customize it too. So you can do it all day if you're on your computer all day. True. You can do movie mode. There's all these things that we use. I should probably be using it right now, but I'm not. I'm not. I just want to see you in all the true colors that you are, Sabrina. I am wearing a tie-dye set. So I am very colorful. 
Yeah, it's a really nice one. It has matching shorts. Where did you get this? So my whole book club got matching. Well, we all picked different tie-dye patterns and colors, but we all got matching sets. And it's a girl, her Instagram is at Color Mash on Instagram because that's where I said it is. Um, <laughs> I don't really know her, but she's a friend of someone in my book club and during quarantine has made her own little tie-dyeing business and she has the cutest little baby outfits and you can do mom and baby matching outfits i love it that's freaking adorable i think i have a hernia (laughs) (laughs) Sabrina, i do i've had one before i had one what are the symptoms so is it appropriate to say on the podcast or do you feel we can say anything we want but do you feel comfortable i totally feel comfortable yeah it's in my it's in my lower stomach and when I was in high school, I noticed like this bulge, the, like a, the size of a golf ball popping out of my stomach. And mm-hmm. I was like freaked out. Yeah, I was totally freaked out. I thought I was dying. And then I pushed it and it popped back into my the depths of my stomach, my Ooh. organs. And it like was gone. And I was like, oh, it's nothing. It's fine. If I'm dying, I'm just not, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to tell anyone. Just the creature from alien living inside of your stomach. No big deal. Totally. I th- Yeah. And so I didn't tell my mom for like a year and then finally it kept popping out and I kept being able to push it back in, but it kept popping out. And I finally was like, mom, I think I'm dying. When we went to like all these doctor's appointments and it was a hernia. And when I was a freshman in college, I got surgery on it over the summer Oh, I do remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they put like mesh wiring into your stomach. So I've been fine since. But then I don't know. I have this bump kind of in the same spot. And I'm I'm like, do I have another one? Wait, I'm sorry. What do you mean they put mesh wiring inside of your stomach? Do they like cage your stomach? Do they put it into like a little cage and keep it there? I am robot. What happens in the airport when you go (laughs) through security? No, it wouldn't. It doesn't set that stuff off. But basically... What a hernia is, it's a hole in your abdomen wall, and sometimes different things can like pop through it depending on where it is. People can live with hernias. Like Clearly, I lived with it for two years almost. It can get dangerous, but the one I had wasn't. But anyway, so they just cover it up with like surgical mesh wiring. What causes it? Do you know? First of all, when I say I got one, many people are like, are you a 45-year-old man? Because (laughs) it is extremely rare in women. And so if I have another one, I love that this has become a medical podcast. What's wrong with my body? (laughs) Is it a panic attack or do I really have a hernia? Uh, If I have another one, there's something wrong with me. People can get it from coughing too hard. It's basically like you're just abdominal lining rips. Oh, this is gross. Although I blame the fact that I've never been able to have a six pack in my whole entire life on the fact that I've had hernias. And I don't think that's true, but I like saying it and people believe me. I'll back you on that. (laughs) If someone's like, Sabrina's so fit, but she's missing her six pack, I'm going to be like, dude, girl has mesh wiring in her stomach. She'll (laughs) never get there. It's deep within. She's a robot. I'm a robot. My confession for the day. Well, that was a good confession. Do you remember? You do remember this because you were telling me about it. You made me remember it about that anonymous... Was it MySpace or Facebook? Oh, Anonymous. Yeah, that hacked into the Minnesota Police Department website. No. I'm talking about two different things. And I have no idea what you're talking about. Like on social media back in the day. Oh, Honesty Box. Honesty Box. Yes, you could download this box and your friends could write. Anyone that was friends with you on like Facebook or MySpace or whatever medium it was on 
could essentially write whatever they wanted and it was entirely anonymous and you had no idea who wrote it. So someone could be like, you're the prettiest person ever. Like you make my day. Yeah. But more often it was awful and mean. Yes. So I think the intention was me. I don't know what the intention was, but I think people were like, oh, maybe people are going to be nice and leave nice, sweet things for their friends. No, it was brutal. It was like bullying so badly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't miss that. I'm glad we don't have that right now. <laughs> Me too. It's awful. Who came up with that? I don't know. I'm glad it's gone. Yeah. I don't remember why you brought it up, but I would assume it's because every time we get a bad review oh, probably. on iTunes, you send it to me. <laughs> Or an email, you'll be like, Corinne, definitely don't look at this email that I just deleted. (laughs) And I'm like, I wouldn't have seen it if you hadn't brought it up. But now I'm curious. It's also because I react so poorly to them and I get like really emotionally hurt by it that I have to tell you because I need someone to talk to about it. And you're the only one who understands this plight. It works out because then I dissect the arguments that make you feel a little bit better. And then... You come out smiling, and then for the next five days, it just sits deeper and deeper within me until I'm so self-conscious I can't even form words the next time we record. And then I say, Sabrina, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm down a dark hole. Alrighty. Are you in the mood to get romantical, Corinne? I am. I love romance. Ooh, do you listeners love romance? Do you love us? Leave us a nice review on iTunes. <laughs> Nothing says romance more than that. Oh, man, we should take out some, like, uh, commercials on cable. Compete, <laughs> compete during uh, what's called Valentine's What's that time of the year where people like other people? Oh, Valentine's Day? Are you lonely? Are you scared of the dark? Are there other creatures maybe lurking in the shadows? Listen to two girls, one ghost. Ooh. Ooh. Well, we picked romantic spots, which is <laughs> why we just did that. <laughs> Thank you for getting us back on track. I love this topic because it was broad enough that we could really go in so many different directions and take where our hearts wanted us to go. And I went somewhere dark because I have a dark heart. <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, before I met Nick, I had a dark heart. I used to say I had a black heart. And then I met Nick and like the Grinch, my heart grew three times, three times the size. Yes, I do remember that back in the day. You said you didn't back believe in, in marriage and that you had a black heart. And then the next year you met Nick and you no longer said those things. <laughs> yep. Yep. I changed. I changed. People change. People grow. Actually, I didn't change. It was always in me. I was just being an angsty teen whose parents had been divorced. And I was like, love isn't real. Unlike your hemorrhoid, your heart was uncaged. (laughs) Hernia, but yes. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I don't know the difference. (laughs) Ew, I'm visualizing it. (laughs) Okay, okay. I printed my research today, so you might hear some crinkling, but I just could not look at a computer anymore today. So I chose to discuss and research Ponari Castle, because when you think castle, you think princesses, Disney, romance, love, and our friends Caitlin and Austin, who are in love and married. So obviously, castle for a episode about romance. And 
for me, it's only furthered by the fact that when you learn that Ponari Castle was the home of Vlad the Impaler. Oh, God. I'm sure you're like, wait, what? Vlad the Impaler? Isn't he a bad guy? How is this about romance? And I'm like, yeah, you're right, Corinne. But let me give you a sneak peek into how my brain got to romance. Okay. So Vlad the Impaler inspired Dracula, Bram mm-hmm. Stoker's Dracula. Okay. Which, you know, Dracula is not necessarily a romance novel at all. But vampires in recent years over time have evolved into these sex symbols, bloodlust, twilight, a.k.a. romance. Oh, vampire diaries. Hobo, hobo. Exactly. And also, Panari Castle came up when I Googled romantic honeymoon destinations. Panari Castle came up on a few of the lists. So, therefore, romance. Got it. And let us dive in. Okay, Panari Castle is a castle that sits in ruins at the top of a formidable and treacherous canyon in Romania. It was originally built in Wallachia, Romania, as the main citadel for the Basarab rulers in the early 13th century. The structure was an architectural masterpiece, and the views beyond the cliffsides were stunning. The castle passed through many families and owners, changing hands with the changing times. So elsewhere in the 13th century in Wallachia, Romania, it's 1428, and the Dracul family is giving birth to a baby boy. And the child was named Vlad Dracul III or who later was known as Vlad Sepe. And Vlad Sepe was destined to make history. He watched as his father, Vlad Dracul I, seized the throne and became the ruler of Wallachia in 1437. All seemed well. It should have been a reign of glory, but it turned very, very gory. So unfortunately, when you're in power, you often have a lot of enemies, especially, you know, in the 1400s. And in 1442, Vlad Sepe, our Vlad the Impaler guy, and his younger brother were both taken hostage by the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire wanted to turn their father, Vlad Dracul I, to their side and force him to pledge his loyalty to them. So the Ottomans kept Vlad and his younger brother as hostages for four years. Whoa. Treated very, very, very poorly. Their lives were put into grave danger. And apparently their father thought that the Ottomans had already killed them and that they were just bluffing and saying, we'll kill your children if you don't pledge your loyalty to me. He thought based on previous history and violence from the Ottomans that they had already killed his sons. So he was like, there's no way I'm going to pledge my loyalty to you, which then again put his children in more danger. Finally, after four years, Vlad's father finally bent his knee to the Ottoman Empire and promised to pay a yearly tribute slash tax to him or to the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And then at that time, the sultan released Vlad III and his brother from their capture. So for four years, they were imprisoned. Four years in the Ottoman Empire. And it's believed that they were kept somewhere in Hungary. There's no real records of where they were actually kept. So shortly after their return home, Vlad's father and elder brother were brutally murdered in front of him and his family was thrown from power. So Vlad III's upbringing was not so happy. No. Oh my God. Or pleasant. And Vlad III became ever more motivated to reclaim Wallachia and put an end to the raging wars in the area. 
He desired a unified Romania, free from outside influences such as Germany, Hungary, and the Ottoman Turks. You know, as he grew up, that was kind of his motivation, and he had this origin story behind him as many potential or trying to be heroes do in the movies. Mm-hmm. In 1448, Vlad III attempted to take power but failed and was forced to flee Wallachia and live in exile until sometime around 1456. And just to preface this, although I've already gotten into the story, page and a half into the story, I am going to give a somewhat brief story of Vlad's background and his history because it's important to the castle. But I won't cover all of it because I'm telling the parts that are pertinent to the castle. Don't get at me. Don't tweet us. Don't bad iTunes review us, please. <laughs> uh, Dear Sabrina, <laughs> Vladimir the Impeller is my favorite, and you skipped over all the best parts. He is great. Well, awful, but great. Very interesting story. He's in exile until 1456, around some time. There are a lot of, a lot of the records of his story are based on letters that had been recovered between other people. So times and dates aren't all accurate in history books and in regards to his his journey in life. Mm. So eventually in 1456, sometime in 1456, he returns to Wallachia with the support of Hungary and becomes the Wallachian leader. And it's around this time that he spots what appears to be the ruins of a castle at the top of a canyon. It was Ponari Castle, which, as I said in the beginning, had been a castle in the early 13th century, but over some time had become abandoned and left in ruins many years prior. But Vlad recognized this defense potential because it was up in the canyons, up on the top of the hill. It was very hard to access it. And there was a river on one side of it. So for any intruders, he would be able to know if they were coming and it would be really hard for them to get to him. He recognized the defense potential, but there was only one issue. It needed a considerable amount of work and reconstruction in order to serve the purpose he wanted it to. But he did not let that discourage him. In fact, he thought it could work in his favor because there was something that since childhood, Vlad had always wanted to do. And it was to get revenge on the people who killed and supported the people who killed his brother and father. And this was his opportunity. So on Easter Day in 1456, Vlad cornered and rounded up every townsperson suspected of conspiring against him and his family, present, past, any inkling of them having been against his family were rounded up. Those who were old or unable to work were impaled and then strung all around the city as a reminder to everyone else in the town not to mess with him. And then he took the men, women, and children to Ponari and put them to work on building his fortress. They worked so hard that their clothing became so ragged and torn to the point that many of them were virtually naked. And many of them died from mistreatment and exhaustion. They were hardly fed. Then once the castle was complete, Vlad impaled the remaining survivors on spikes all around the castle, but he did not kill them before doing so. He impaled them while they were alive and then they all were forced to die a very slow, very painful mm. death. Oh my God. While it's unclear how many people were impaled, there was one report that stated the area of the impalements was massive and over 20,000 men, women, and children had been left to die on the stakes there. He's psycho. Yes. And let me remind you, this is an episode about romantic haunted places, but I already took you through all of my reasons 
And also, people do go here for honeymoons, so Mm -hmm. don't blame me. Blame me and Nick for when we go here for our honeymoon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, after this, of course, Vlad gains the name Vlad the Impaler, and his terror is known and spread throughout the region. And quite ironically, his desire for peace became something of a reality. So, you know, he took the throne, took power with this ideology of peace and and no outside influence to Romania and then he kills all these people but then somehow manages to achieve his version of peace and he quickly effected change and was able to revolutionize Wallachia but part of the way that he did this was giving away the land money goods of the people he captured and killed so Vlad became a force to reckon with and he was not afraid to use force or kill when others disagreed with him. He left a trail of bodies behind him in the many years he had in power until 1462, when Vlad executed a high-powered or a few high-powered officials in the Ottoman Empire and then made plans to invade the empire and overtake it. But the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire heard of his plans and gathered up a army of 150,000 to face Vlad and even turned Vlad's younger brother, Radu against him, and he basically promised his younger brother, the one, the brother he spent years imprisoned with. So the Sultan turns probably Vlad's closest confidant, I'm assuming, just based on, I don't know, based on nothing. He turns his younger brother against him by promising him the throne once they kill Vlad. Mm -hmm. The Sultan sends his 150,000 men led by Vlad's brother. Back at Panari Castle, Vlad sees the Ottoman Empire invasion. They're climbing up the steep slopes of the hill, slowly getting closer and closer to the castle. And he knew that he was outnumbered. It's said that Vlad's wife, Justina, who is his first wife, and I I think he remarried once or twice after this happened, but Justina chose to fling herself from one of the Ponari's towers when she heard of the siege because she thought the horrors she would face from capture would be exponentially worse than an imminent death and to rot and be eaten by the fish in the waters below the tower. So she jumped out of the tower and into the river below. And as legend says, the river turned red from her blood. And then the town began calling it the Ladies River in honor of Justina. But it's very sad because she could have survived with Vlad. But I also believe that Vlad probably didn't tell her of his plan because... uh, Kind of feel okay saying he probably wasn't the best husband. Again, episode about love. Um, (laughs) So the Ottomans are approaching Panari and shooting cannons through the walls. And Vlad was like, I have to come up with an escape plan. So he turns to his confidants and they come up with this kind of brilliant plan, which I don't know how they had the time to do this with the approaching army. But basically what they did is they escaped through a secret passageway in the castle and fled to the castle or wherever they kept the mules. And then, as has become a famous story, they mounted the horseshoes on their mules backwards so that when the mules went one direction, it looked like they were going the opposite direction based on the way the hoof prints were. And so when the Ottomans did arrive, they would see the horseshoe tracks going the opposite direction and go the wrong way instead of following the right way that they went. <gasps> that is brilliant. Right? But how they had the time to do that, I do not know. So Vlad was able to get away. He got away with a few confidants. And 
While he was forced out of his beloved castle, he continued to fight for his power and apparently regained power once more. It wasn't until late December 1476 or maybe early January 1477. Again, records are unsure because it's based on when a letter was received and the letter was received at a later date stating that this happened. Late December or early January 1477, Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Vlad Dracul or Vlad Sepes, was killed by the Ottomans. They reportedly cut his corpse into pieces and tossed him away without a proper burial. And then, fast forward many, many, many years, Bram Stoker writes Dracula, and it was widely known and accepted that he based the bloodthirsty monster after Vlad the Impaler, and that Bran Castle inspired the castle in the novel. But, 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 Vlad never spent time at Bran Castle, ever. In fact, Bran Castle was in Hungary, which is a place that was very unwelcoming for him, and is the area where he and his brother were held prisoner. So, Bran Castle is not Vlad or Dracula's castle. The real castle was Ponari in Romania, and his spirit may still be there. So after Vlad was forced out of his castle, it passed through many other owners and was used up until the 17th century when it was left again in ruins. And then in 1913, an earthquake caused a landslide and portions of the castle slid off the cliffside and into the river below. And it's rumored that during the 1950s, people would climb to Panari Castle ruins seeking refuge during the communist era in Romania, and they would hide in the castle and sleep there until they could find another way out and find another safe place to go. And this is when the ghost stories and legends begin. So there's a man named Vincent Lee Hillier who was forced to hide in Panari Castle at some point in the late 1950s. And while he was there, he claimed the temperatures in the castle would fluctuate in very strange ways. Which, obvious sign of ghosts. And he said there would be cold spots and then a warm room would suddenly chill and then only in moments later return to its warmth. And he would smell rotten flowers, even though there were none in the ruins. And furthermore, he began suffering from bizarre nightmares. He ended up writing this whole story about how in his nightmares he was outside and he saw like a mule and he was chasing it. And he was chasing it, and eventually he would get to this destination. There would be an old woman there, and she'd, like, sprint at him and try to bite him. Mm. And he, he would wake up in his in the castle, wake up in a sweat from his, his nightmare, and he would be bleeding from, like, a bite mark in the oh spot gosh. that he had been bitten in this dream. And he oh. would wake up similarly to being punched and kicked and all these violent things that were happening in his dreams. He would suffer those real physical ailments in his waking life. But they weren't just dreams. He believed that something did not want him in the castle and that he felt watched everywhere he went for the entire time that he spent there. There's one person who probably wouldn't want anyone in his castle, Vlad the Impaler. He's also known for being pretty violent. A lot of the encounters are very similar, and some who go in search of Vlad never return from their trip quite a few reports of missing people who were last known to be on their way to Panari Castle. Does that mean Vlad is doing something to them? I can't be sure, because also getting up there is a very difficult trek. I think it's you have to climb 1,462 steps to get up to the top, and then you also, oh. it's kind of in a remote area, and just getting there in general takes time. Can you imagine what a good booty you'd have if you had to climb those stairs every day? 
Let's go see. Let's go try. We'll quarantine there from now on. Yeah. <laughs> We're recording from Ponari Castle in Romania. Vlad, do you have anything to say? Big booty, big booty, big booty. Oh, yeah, big booty. Uh, people report seeing flashing lights and hearing abnormal sounds in the tower and surrounding areas of the castle. And it's believed that the sounds could be the spirit of Vlad's wife, Justina. She's also been seen near the river where she died, but her spirit only seems to wander and watch people in the castle rather than enact any harm or be very active. She's just kind of wandering around. There are legends and beliefs in the surrounding area that the castle is cursed and many locals refuse to visit because, one, they're afraid of Vlad and they're also afraid of all the many innocent souls who have been trapped there and are seeking some kind of revenge. Discovery Channel filmed a documentary around Panari Castle, and in the middle of the night, they saw red lights coming up the mountain towards the castle through a non-existent path kind of towards them, and they had no physical explanation for it, but they were just terrified and left because they were so scared. And I tried to find the video, but I couldn't. So someone, if you can find it, please share it with us. And then Amy from Amy's Crypt, which is a website that I've used a few other times because she... I think she's British and she travels kind of in different places and stays the night and then does like a whole write up about the place. But she's great. If anyone wants to watch YouTube videos of haunted places, she did an overnight stay at Panari Castle and experienced a very similar light at the top of the castle. She also communicated with the spirits via a spirit box and got a slew of responses, many of which were in another language. So the only ones that she could decipher were someone speaking the name Vlad and another one saying, bitch. Dirty mouth. And also, when when was that word invented? When did we start using that? That seems more modern, but I could be entirely incorrect. Where did you learn that, Vlad? <laughs> but also, could spirits pick up, pick up on words that we say or repeat a word, you know? Yeah. No, definitely. Also, so that man who had dreams of being attacked, didn't he say he had dreams of being attacked by a woman? Yeah, but it could be like... I'm just wondering if Vlad's wife had more of a part in some of the hmm. torture and destruction of the human soul than perhaps we knew. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, also it could be any number of spirits, right? Like it could be an innocent soul who's trying to get revenge, who's become angry in the afterlife and is attacking people. Yeah, or just trying to mimic what happened to them. And then show show it that way. Like what happened to you right now it happened to me prior. Yeah. Or it's like get out of here and by attacking them, they're, they were trying to get him to leave. Mm -hmm. Like it's not safe kind of thing. I don't know. Whatever it is, whoever these spirits are, it's abundantly clear that Panari is haunted by many, many spirits. That's no surprise because if I were impaled and left to die, I would be sure to haunt that place. And I'm very hopeful that Vlad's spirit is there because he's being forced to, you know, in his like, his punishment is like be forced to face the spirits and face what he did and that he's being tortured by them or something. But who knows? Or even just having been used to the power that he had during his life. I mean, granted, he had a horrible upbringing and his childhood seemed just something that I would never wish upon anyone. But I wonder if part of it would be punishment as well, because in this spirit form, or at least the spirit form that he's in, he's much less capable of interacting or of, I guess, putting upon others the hatred and horror that he did and could do when he was of flesh and bone. Yeah. 
In conclusion, if you're looking for a romantic getaway with your boo, there's no place <laughs> <laughs> there's no place more romantical than Panare Castle. It's a trip that'll surely spice things up in your life whenever we can travel again. It's not easy to get up there. Be prepared to climb up the 1,462 steps. Just know that if your significant other is not as big into this stuff as you are, they are going up those 1,462 steps for you. And that proves that they would do anything for for love. That is a very good test. (laughs) (laughs) Tying it back to romance. There we go. Romance isn't dead. Or is it? It's not, Corinne. I'm sorry if I missed this if you already said this, but is he one of the big contributors to like modern day vampires in that sort of theory? Do you know? Vlad the Impaler is the inspiration for the original vampire Dracula. Oh, that's right. You said that in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I was just thinking like the biting and all that. Yeah. The visions of Mm -hmm. blood and... Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Real gross. Because he was... Not bloodthirsty, literally in the sense, but in in the sense that he was leaving a trail of bodies behind him and and was kind of ruthless. I'm curious if he's ever been contacted on a spirit box or some sort of medium that would capture an EVP. Well, yeah, on Amy's crypt. I was going to say, you said he said bitch and all this stuff, but in my mind, it wasn't like through a machine. It was just like her hearing like, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That would be even more terrifying. Uh, She picked up a lot and it wasn't clear if it was Vlad or if it were other spirits talking about Vlad, but I'm sure if we were to go and do a spirit box or try to get EVPs, like we would probably contact something. Yeah. You said she has a YouTube channel? Mm -hmm. Amy's Crypt. Okay. I'm going to have to watch that one because I'm really curious. I want to hear it back, the voices that came in. It's one minute to Leia's dinner. Bell training time. I'm excited to hear what you did. Mm, I'm excited to tell you. (laughs) Okay. So this year, Architectural Digest voted this place as the seventh most romantic restaurant in the world. Because there's a blood-sucking vampire and impaler from there? Close. U.S. politics are involved. So close enough. Uh, It is the New York City restaurant. Named One If By Land, Two If By Sea. It's located in West Village, and this restaurant is known for its classic menu, beautiful decor, architecture, and the history of the structure itself. And actually, Sabrina, when you and I were doing our live show in New York, I had somewhat kind of heard of this restaurant before, and I was thinking like, oh, we should go there. But then we made plans to go to Beetlejuice, and I'm really glad we (laughs) saw Beetlejuice. But next time, we'll have to go here. I love it. Okay, so I'm just going to preface before getting too far into this that there's a lot of history involved, so buckle up. The building first turned into a restaurant in 1910, and then in 1973, it changed over to the new ownership and to the new restaurant that we now know as One If By Land, Two If By Sea. It's the go-to spot in New York City for engagements, anniversary dinners, weddings. It's beautiful. It's got candlelit tables, natural wood Warm stains, all these nice features, brick fireplaces, a baby grand piano, a private garden. It's just like, ugh, elegance. The chefs are extremely talented. They have created this classic American cuisine and romance-inspiring plates to complement the intimate atmosphere. The signature dish is beef wellington. Yum. So everything is just like 
man, if you look at pictures here, you're like, wow, I understand why someone would want to have like a wedding reception or do an engagement dinner here. It's just everything about it is screaming like comfort and love and romance and all of this. Inside the restaurant, you might be seated in a number of rooms like the Constitution Room or the Mezzanine. Hmm, these are interesting names for rooms, don't you think? I do now. If we take a look at the names and at the name of the restaurant, one if by land, two if by sea, this too is an interesting name and a historical name. It is actually a reference to the American history and political history of the United States One If By Land, Two If By Sea is a line that is taken from the poem called The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, written by Henry Walsworth Longello about Paul Revere's ride to Lexington, Massachusetts on the night of April 18th, 1775. So the poem is a little bit longer than this, but I'm just going to read you a few lines so that you understand where the name came from. So this part of the poem goes, He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land and two if by sea. Okay, so a quick history lesson. On April 18th, 1775 in Boston, Massachusetts, what's up? That's where I live. Paul Revere was asked by Dr. Joseph Warren to ride out to Lexington, Massachusetts to warn everyone really specifically to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that the British troops were heading that way. Sam Adams and John Hancock, they were staying at a house out there. So Paul Revere was essentially tasked with going and warning them that the British were coming. And so Paul Revere, he gathers his stuff. He heads to the north end of Boston, which is now famous for their Italian food. And he paddles, a couple of his friends paddle him across the Charles River over to Charlestown And then he rides to Lexington. But before doing all this, he asked one of his friends, like, hey, can you go to the Christ Church Tower, which is now the Old North Church? He was like, can you go there and can you put two lanterns up in the tower to signal me what's going on? Like, put two lanterns there if the British troops are planning to row across the Charles River by sea, just like I am. Or put one lantern if the troops are going to take the long way and they're going to march on the land out of the Boston Neck. So one if by land, two if by sea. Wow. That makes sense. It makes sense. The following year, on July 4th, 1776, America gained its independence. Okay, so why are we talking about this history lesson? We have Paul Revere, we have Samuel Adams, we have John Hancock, all prominent figures in the American Revolutionary War and eventual declaration of independence. So why is this restaurant in New York City referencing this era of U.S. history? Well, that is because this restaurant used to be the carriage house that was built in 1767 and purchased by Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr? I don't remember anything from my U.S. history classes, and I haven't watched Hamilton on Disney Plus yet. (laughs) Who is Aaron Burr? (laughs) Tell us, Corinne. Okay, the quick snapshot is that Aaron Burr is considered to be one of the founding fathers alongside the obvious uh, small group that we know as our founding fathers, but many others were included as well, him being one of them. He ran for president. He lost to Thomas Jefferson, but he secured his spot as vice president to Jefferson for Jefferson's first term, which also made me wonder, like, do you think that Thomas Jefferson made him macaroni and cheese? Aaron Burr, have you had it? And then eventually Aaron Burr 
having been in a verbal and political tiff with Alexander Hamilton, who is a founding father, for many years, he decides to do something about it. So Hamilton and Aaron Burr, back in the day, were having a lot of disagreements. Hamilton was like, yo, you suck. I don't trust you. I think you're sneaky and corrupt. You want to take advantage of this power. I'm not backing you. I'm going to keep gossiping about you at dinner parties. And Burr was like, oh, my God, you are ruining my life. Get my name out of your mouth, Alexander. And so Burr was like, Alexander Hamilton, we are going to duel. And so they duel to settle this feud once and for all, which was illegal, by the way. But they went to Jersey to do it because the no rules in Jersey. <laughs> there, there surprisingly were rules, but it was less so and, and less, uh, I guess, enforced in Jersey. <laughs> so they went there. So they head away from New York City. They go over there. And Burr ends up shooting Alexander Hamilton during this duel on July 11th, 1804. Hamilton was alive after being shot, but he was critically wounded. He was paralyzed from the waist down. He was brought to a family friend's home, and he eventually died from internal bleeding not long after being shot. So everyone's like, oh, my God, Burr, this is so annoying of you. This is not okay to do. And so Burr is like, oh, man. I'm really going to be haunted by this for the rest of my life. So he eventually flees with his family to the South. But during his time in New York, he had lived in an estate called Richmond Hill, which covered the majority of what is now West Village in Manhattan. Sorry, real quick, just as a note, which I famously spoke about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr in episode 129 and accidentally said Alexander Burr instead of Aaron Burr once and someone wrote a bad iTunes review. Well, you know what? They were basically thick as thieves in history. So it's they I'm sure they could take each other's it, their last names are interchangeable here. But you know what? They're not. And I said it once by accident because I got caught up in the story. But then the rest of the episode, I didn't say it. I even listened back and I was crucified for it. It's okay. Has anyone ever heard of drunk history? That's basically what's happening here. So <laughs> yes, basically, if you're looking for hard facts and someone to check those facts before hitting publish, this is not your place. But Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr famously worked together on a case, even though they hated each other. And I talked yes. about that in episode 129. Yeah, just watch Hamilton the musical, guys. They were basically two of the, the main characters in that. Maybe I'll watch that tonight. You should. Oh, Sabrina, have you not seen it? <laughs> I haven't. I'm not usually a huge musical person, nor ordinarily I reject anything history related. However, I watched the first 20 minutes and I was like, hmm, this is pretty good. By the end, by the time I finished, I was like, this was really good. Sat on it for two days and now I'm obsessed. If you look at my text, it's all just memes, facts about Hamilton. <gasps> I don't do anything else anymore. Lin-Manuel Lin so Miranda, he's a genius. Yep. And obviously, this is why I found a way to talk about Hamilton while talking about ghost stories. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, so at the time that Burr was living in New York, working in New York, and had eventually killed Alexander Hamilton, he was living at the estate called Richmond Hill, which covered the majority of West Village. And part of the, his estate was his old carriage house, the stable house where he kept his horses. And so the majority of what was once Richmond Hills now broken up and it's a variety of shops and restaurants and apartment houses and what have you. It's now West Village. But the old stable house was a structure that was kept and it's now home to the restaurant One If By Land, Two If By Sea. 
Wow. So just a little more info. So although Burr moved around a bit after murdering Alexander Hamilton, he mostly avoided New York City, New Jersey for a lot of his middle part of his life after killing Hamilton. But he was really haunted for the rest of his life for doing that. He considered Hamilton to be one of his friends, even though they had a lot of arguments. They really didn't get along politically at all. But Burr went on to live kind of this crazy wild life after all of these events happened. He eventually died in the New York area on September 14th, 1836. But his spirit was not done. His spirit wanted to return to this spot. And so his spirit moved back to his New York City West Village estate to Richmond Hill and now haunts the remaining structure that we now know as the restaurant, one if by land, two if by sea. How cool. So cool. So after Burr killed Hamilton, much of his property, including the carriage house, was taken away from him. This specific structure was transformed into an engine house for the fire station next door. It was once a brothel. It was a saloon. There was plenty of illegal activity thrown around there because it was kind of this discreet area, this discreet building that had some some passageways and, and different uh just like the structure of it made it easy to kind of sneak around. There was a hidden stone lined passageway that ran to the Hudson River. Uh, So there was some crime going on, but then eventually it moved kind of away from the crime and it became a silent movie house. It was then a restaurant and then finally turned from a different restaurant into one of my land, two of my seat restaurant. So in present day, many of the workers and owners of the restaurant have experienced paranormal activity They believe that Aaron Burr is the ghostly culprit. Dinner plates and silverware will fly across the room. Lights will flicker. Pictures that were once perfectly level will just start to tilt themselves. (laughs) Machinery will begin to operate on its own. And people have even been touched. But really, it's it's more being pushed (gasps) by an unseen hand. Burr. 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 Stop that. That's cold. (laughs) Bar, it's cold in here. There must be a ghost in the atmosphere. (laughs) So stupid. Okay. Um, A female member of the staff, she actually quit after being fed up with all of the paranormal activity that happened. And rightfully so, because this particular staff member said that every single night without fail, as she walked up or down the stairs, she'd be shoved by a hand. Like someone forcefully playing with her, just kind of smacking and and hitting her back, the middle of her back, a little too hard. Rude. But Aaron Burr was not alone here either. His daughter, Theodosia, she is also thought to haunt this restaurant. Theodosia, she went missing, actually. She was trying to take a trip from South Carolina up to New York to visit her father when she was in her 20s, I believe, and the ship was lost at sea, and it's believed that that's when she died. They don't really know what happened. There was some suspicions that she was basically forced to walk the plank by these pirates that had taken over the ship. Others said a storm came in and wrecked the ship. Whatever happened to her, she drowned or died in some sort of way. And her spirit, after this failed trip, decided to continue on to the pathway of making her way to New York. And so her spirit continued on to find her father. And when they both eventually had passed away, their spirits reunited in the afterlife. And they now reside together in the old carriage house. One if by land, two if by sea. They weren't able to live their full lives together. And they were reunited to live their full afterlives together. I think that is 
a very, I know they're father and daughter, but that is a very romantical gesture. Yeah, it's nice that they're, I mean, and to one thing, it's always hard when it comes to history and like how things are actually chronicled. I saw some things that were a little shady on the internet about the two of them, but then I also saw things about like how they were close in terms of father and daughter because Theodosia's mother had died when I think she was like four or something like that. She was quite young. And so basically Aaron Burr raised her and eventually like, or not eventually, but the the other children that he had as a single father for a lot of his life. So their two spirits are together now in the restaurant and they're often spotted standing together in the mezzanine. And Theodosia is also spotted walking up and down the stairs on occasion. Her spirit targets women, both staff and restaurant patrons. It doesn't matter who you are, but if you are sitting at the bar or near the bar and you're wearing earrings, there might be an invisible force, some little cold hands that you can't see, but you can feel pulling your earrings out of your ears. Isn't that your biggest fear? Basically, Yes, I'm going to let my holes close up now. Wow, that would be so unsettling because that's such an active, like putting their fingers through your hair or like touching you feels quick and it's over with, but actively taking your earring out is a process and feels like a huge invasion. It's, yeah, it's a little too intimate. I looked at so many articles and I couldn't get any specific information on whether the earrings are just basically taken out or if they're literally like stolen, if she's taking them to collect them. I don't know if people get their earrings returned or mm. really what happens after the feeling of having them removed. She just wants wants earrings again. I guess, yeah. It's her way of shopping. She's stuck in the carriage house now, so she's got to shop any way she can. Wow. But even though earrings are removed, items are broken, people are pushed a little too hard, no one who's experienced the paranormal activity there actually believes that Aaron Burr or Theodosia mean any harm. They don't think that they're malevolent spirits. They think that these two are just trying to pull some pranks. Staff at the restaurant have tried kind of to coax the spirits into calming down their pranks by offering them dishes from the restaurant, a bribe, if you will, which you know, according to some history, might not be such a foreign thing to Aaron Burr. Mm -hmm. And general manager Roseanne Martino once said, I've had experiences, inexplicable experiences. I've been here for eight years and I have seen a lot. And another manager, Kirk Adair, compared working at the restaurant to being in a forest where you know that there are creatures around you and you don't see them, but you know that they're there. And if you do see them, it's usually just for quick moment out of the corner of your eye. Wow. So Aaron and Theodosia, they're having a lot of fun, but it's believed that they are not the only spirits in this house. Remember, it was their property and it was their carriage house, but post them being removed slash escorted out of New York, essentially, that structure lived many lives with many other owners, many other patrons, many other people coming in and out. So it's seen a lot over the past three centuries. So Aaron and Theodosia, they're loving, loving life here, but they're also accompanied by many other spirits. A parapsychologist visited the restaurant and believes that there are about 20 or so spirits in the building from different time periods, and they're all aware of one another. They know that they're not the only ones there. They chat and hang with the other people. They share the space, which is so unique and so interesting. That's so cool. 
yeah, it's come up before with us where like, do they know? Like, are you just kind of stuck in your own little world? Right. It seems like they're super self-aware. They're all very self-aware here. A few notable spirits is uh, one is a woman in black and she's seen walking down the staircase and it's believed that she had accidentally fallen down the stairs and broke her neck and passed away in the carriage house or, or whatever it was operating as when she had passed away. There's also a Ziegfeld Follies girl in the Constitution room and the staff lights a candle for her spirit. Oh, that's sweet. Another spirit is of a man who enjoys hanging out by the fireplace. And there are two fireplaces in this restaurant. So I'm not sure if he favors one over the other or where you should ask to sit. But maybe ask your host when you can eventually go. They are doing a takeout at the moment. And another spirit who likes to use the front door and will just enter and exit as they please. Just using the front door like a normal patron. Wow. So if you are in New York City... If you are a history buff, if you enjoy fine dining, if you are looking for a romance, if you are interested in ghostly encounters, one if by land, two if by sea, is your one-stop shop. I want to go with you for a nice romantic dinner. Right? We could totally go. It sounds so cool. And that's like the perfect place for us to be like, so tell us all the ghost stories to a waiter. I know. They clearly, I love that they embrace it and the fact that they pay homage to that ghost and that they respect the the fact that their spirits there, they live harmoniously. It's amazing. It is. And it's just pretty wild to think about how much history happened within that block, within that one home, within the people and even the spirits who haunt the place. I I feel like my mind's always blown when I hear about, like we did presidential hauntings. Mm Mm-hmm. Just any significant figure, whether it's, you know, George Washington or if it's Marilyn Monroe, I'm just like so blown away that these spirits that already felt kind of far away in life, like a celebrity is so far away from you. They're so distant. They're not someone that you can just walk up to or that's easily accessible, I guess is what I'm saying. It's interesting to think of them kind of on the same playing field in this in the afterlife where they too might just be hanging out in some place or stuck in between or confused just like anyone else would. Just because they're, they did whatever they did in life doesn't mean that they're given this golden ticket and no. a hand is held out and they're like, here's the answers to everything in the world. You make a good point. Also, sorry, I need to say this because it's been on my mind. I have been saying romantical like a few times and it's because Nick and I jokingly say how romantical and I know it's not a real word. I just need to clarify that. So no one gets at me. I thought you were just being goofy. Okay, I'm glad you thought that. But I just, I was like, it's something that Nick and I do and say to each other so often that. Oh, no, I thought you were just being like corny. Like, how romantical. Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of us going to this restaurant. And it's funny because New York, you're from Jersey. So somewhat of your home anyway. But it's the place where you and Nick got engaged. And I love the mm-hmm. idea of you and I going and actually going to the most romantic restaurant in the <laughs> whole city and having our own podcast engagement. <laughs> Hosts for life. We'll wear our matching rings. <laughs> we got to save up for our big trips. Okay, I have a listener story. Okay. And this is not as dark as my story was. <laughs> this is from Erica and it's called Haunted Honeymoon. Hey guys, I recently discovered your podcast and I can't stop listening to it now. I thought I would share my own story, not that you're locking for any new ones. 
And uh, here you go. My husband, Franklin, and I got married last year. This is this was written in 2018. So they got married in 2017 and went on a honeymoon to Europe. One of the cities we visited was Prague. We stayed in a beautiful hotel there called Patrov Palace. And apparently the hotel was originally built in the 16 and 1700s by a noble family, the Pacha family. It was built to be a palace and is located right on the main river near the Charles Bridge. Mozart was a frequent visitor, and fun fact, one of the Pacha family members actually imprisoned Mozart for a period of time to force him into composing some music for them. You know, just typical 18th century behavior. This does tie in with your with your story, though. I guess it does. Captors? <laughs> it's also very um, Misery by Stephen King. Yes. As you can imagine, with it being a former palace and all, it's fancy as fuck. It also is not your typical hotel, so the suites are subdivided into a somewhat awkward manner. The suite we stayed in was humongous and had a kitchen, a dining room, a living room, and of course, a bedroom and bathroom. The bathroom had a super luxurious bathtub, and it was probably the nicest hotel in which we have ever stayed. We were on the top floor, and the building was designed in a weird way, such that our suite's walls were not shared with any other room. Our bedroom and bathroom were also located at the very far end of the building, meaning there was no way for anyone to be standing on the other side of the wall. The bed was located right next to the bathroom door, and the side of the bed I slept on was the closest to the bathroom. So we stayed there for a total of three nights, and on the first night, I randomly woke up in the middle of the night, and I turned over to fall back asleep, and I heard my husband speak to me from the bathroom, which was two feet away from me, with the door closed, saying, Erica, come in here. I need help getting out of the bathtub. I was confused because it was so late at night, but before I could really think about it, I heard him repeat the thing over again. Erica, come in here. I need help getting out of the bathtub. So I stood up, got out of bed, opened the bathroom door, and proceeded to find the bathroom completely dark. That's when I realized I could hear my husband snoring from our bed. Even though I was confident I heard him say that from the bathroom, I kind of just blew it off. It was like 3 a.m. and I figured it was either a dream or he was talking in his sleep. But I didn't bother mentioning it to him, thinking it wasn't that big of a deal. So the next day, we come back to the hotel mid-afternoon, and my husband decides to take a nap while I read a book in bed next to him. I was sitting up and super interested in my book, definitely not falling asleep or anywhere close to being zoned out, and clear as day, I heard his voice coming from the bathroom again, saying, Erica, come in here. I need help getting out of the bathtub. I turned my head to the right, right where he was laying on the bed. So literally, as I'm staring at his face, I hear his voice again coming from the bathroom, saying the exact same thing. Erica, come in here. I need your help getting out of the bathtub. Ooh. My husband is definitely not a ventriloquist, and I had no freaking clue how this was happening. I was freaked out, but my husband is very scientifically minded and logical. He's never believed in the whole ghost or paranormal thing like I have. So I thought he would just make a joke out of it and not take it seriously. So I kept it to myself and didn't tell him anything. Flash forward to the next day. We've been constantly walking around Prague and my body is super sore. So I decided to take a bath to feel better while he took another nap. This guy takes many naps, y'all. I ran the water like super hot and became really relaxed to the point where I started to fall into that twilight stage of sleep, like when you're half out of it, but still generally know what's going on around you. 
And a couple minutes later, my husband starts calling my name from the bedroom, asking me to repeat what I said, but I hadn't said anything to him. And I figured he just heard someone talking in another room or the courtyard. So I told him not to worry about it, got out of the tub, and we got dressed for dinner. At dinner, we were talking about how much we really enjoyed Prague because it was our last night there and would love to come back sometime in the future. We also talked about how nice the hotel was. My husband then proceeded to ask me why I was acting so weird earlier in the day. And when I asked him what he was talking about, he said he didn't understand why I was having such an issue when I was in the bathroom. I still wasn't quite putting two and two together, so I asked him what I had said that made him think I was being weird. He then told me that I had called him twice from the bathroom and said, Franklin, come in here. I need help getting out of the bathtub. Remember, at this point, I still had not told him anything about how I experienced the exact same thing of his voice calling me. So I legitimately freaked the fuck out as any normal person should and then told him everything. And then the two of us just kind of stared at each other for a few minutes before concluding that the hotel was obviously haunted. Oh my God, I lose my mind. <laughs> I don't think either of us slept well that night. And I've tried to do some research into the hotel to find out if other people have experienced similar things or if any weird murders, deaths have happened there, but to no avail. However, it only recently opened as a hotel, so I'm guessing there just haven't been enough people that have stayed there yet. In any case, this experience terrified me, and I can now say that my honeymoon was haunted by a Czech ghost that can apparently speak English and mock other people's voices. Or maybe it was Mozart. I'm not sure yet. Thanks for reading my story. I love listening to all the different stories you guys and other listeners come up with. See you on the other side, Erica. I like the idea that it was Mozart. <laughs> yeah, me too. He's just having a bubble bath and he's, mm -hmm. he's just coming up with some new music, wants to sing you a lick. Just some good fun. Wow. Ooh, I really, I really want to know what other people have experienced there or what the hotel staff knows, which this is a good time to encourage Erica to Erica, if you have not already done so on forums or any like TripAdvisor, any review site to kind of mention the haunting, I think that sometimes it's like no one wants to be the first person to say something or everyone's starting to think like, oh no, what if, what if I, I don't feel validated in my experience because I don't know of anyone else who's had the same thing happen to them. And so you could be the first, you can be that person to trigger the line of others to say, well, okay, that did happen. I thought I was making that up. Yeah. I also wonder now, because that email was sent in 2018, if in the two years since there's been any update and if we could look it up and find anything more. But also, I'm curious. I love the idea of it having been Mozart haunting them, but it does sound like it's a ghost that maybe died in a bath, like drowned in the bathtub or mm. needed help or was drowning. And But it's weird that it's mimicking their significant others voices right and knows their names the knowing names i can get behind because they probably the ghost probably heard them saying it but mimicking the voice is weird all right well we got to research that it, we will this is our call out to all of our listeners if you know someone who's ever stayed there or if you're really good at finding things on the internet let's hear some other crazy <laughs> crazy stories from here so that we can get some answers. We can see what other people have seen. We can see what's happened here at this building before. We need answers to our questions. All right. What's your story? <laughs> it's a good one. Okay. This is called Ghost Dad Matchmakers, and it is from Abby. 
Hello, my name is Abby and my partner Jacob and I love your podcast. We love all things spooky and we take you with us camping, on road trips, and listen anytime we want to laugh or have a spooky thrill. Thanks for keeping us entertained and informed of all things ghostly. (laughs) We have an interesting story of how he and I got together that we believe involves spirit fatherly intervention. In the fall of 2012, I was in Olympia, Washington, and Jacob was living in Keptville, Ontario, Canada, which is basically on the opposite side of the continent from Olympia. I had known Jacobs superficially for years prior, circa like 2005, because he would visit Olympia often and used to date someone in town that I was acquainted with, but we never really talked much outside of light, friendly conversation at parties, etc., I had thought he was attractive back then, but we were both taken at the time, and so we left it at that. Flash forward to the fall of 2012, and I was living on my own in Olympia, having just gone through a big breakup several months earlier that also required a big move. While unpacking boxes, I found an old photo of Jacob and his girlfriend. It reminded me of how attractive and interesting (laughs) he had been. It had been many years since I had seen Jacob, and seeing his photo had made me smile. I found the photo of Jacob on October 11th, which was a particularly hard day for me as it was my dad's birthday and my dad had passed of cancer a few years earlier. I put the photo away in my photo box, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. The picture would pop into my head at work and when I was trying to sleep. Something was nagging me to try to make a connection with this old acquaintance that I hadn't seen for almost seven years. Oh my gosh. And I finally decided to find Jacob on Facebook and I sent him this photo as just a friendly hi. So on October 15th, 2012, I took a picture of the photo and I sent it to Jacob on Facebook with a friend request saying, hey, hope this finds you well. Look at this old funny pic I found of you, etc. Jacob wrote back to me right away and he and I started talking. Quickly, I learned Jacob was living in Ontario, which was single as well and was really awesome. We immediately clicked and started a long distance romance complete with sweet love letters and long phone conversations. During one of our earliest phone calls, I learned that the day that I had sent him that photo, October 15th, was also his father's birthday. His dad had passed away from cancer as well when Jacob was four. I didn't think much of the dates except that they were heartwarming coincidences until something else a little more spooky happened. Several months after Jacob and I started talking and we'd professed our love interest for each other, Jacob called me and told me of a strange experience that he'd had at his home in Kempville. Jacob's house in Kempville was on several acres of country, and his neighbors were few and literally far between. He had been outside gardening with his very loyal and protective dog, Tallulah, an Aussie border collie mix, when he noticed a man standing in his driveway next to his truck. Tallulah noticed this man as well and jumped up and ran towards the man, barking loudly. Jacob followed her to find out what the man wanted, why he was just standing in the driveway next to his truck, and where he'd come from. The man was standing on the far side of Jacob's truck, and as Jacob and barking Tallulah came around the side of the truck in order to face the man, the man disappeared. (gasps) Tallulah sniffed around, confused, looking for the man, as did Jacob. Jacob told me the story and how scary it was to see someone in his driveway and then to have the man vanish before his eyes. He described to me the man, and while it felt familiar, I just chalked it up to Jacob sees dead people, as he is more open to the spirit world than I am. Jacob has the ability to sense spirit and is much more aware of ghosts and spirits than I am, so maybe this particular spirit just liked his truck and wanted to get a closer look? 
ghostly gearheads. <laughs> a few months later, we were comparing family photos, looking at silly pictures of us as babies, our siblings, family members, etc. When Jacob saw an old photo of my dad from when I was very young, and therefore my dad was also young, he recognized him as the man who had been standing in his driveway a few months earlier. <sighs> Chills. Oh my gosh. Jacob hadn't seen my dad or pictures of him before, so he didn't realize who it was when he'd seen him by his truck initially. I couldn't believe it. My dad had gone to visit Jacob. But why? My dad had always been a very overprotective father, and after going through a few painful breakups, perhaps my dad had just gone to Jacob to check him out. Make sure he'd be a good fit for his only daughter? I'm not sure, but after finding the photo of Jacob on my dad's birthday, feeling pulled to send the photo to Jacob on his dad's birthday, and then the ghostly visit of my dad at Jacob's house in the country, <laughs> it's hard to not feel like our dads has something to do with it, <laughs> bringing Jacob and I together. Maybe our dads were on the other side being fatherly matchmakers. I think so. That is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob and I eventually moved to Toronto together, and on one of our first adventures into the city, we saw Jacob's dad. We went to visit the neighborhood where Jacob had lived when he was born, and Jacob had been living with his parents and siblings in Toronto when his father died. His mother and siblings moved away to live in Ottawa afterwards, and that is where Jacob had grown up. When we got to Toronto, we wanted to visit his old home and neighborhood, so we went to see his old house. We did a tour of Jacob's childhood neighborhood, and while at the stoplight on our way back to the new apartment, Jacob looked over to see a man standing on the sidewalk looking towards our truck. That man looks like my dad, Jacob announced in a sort of disbelief and shock. Oh. I looked too, and it was Jacob's dad standing there watching us. I recognized him too from the photos, but we just drove away and looking back, he was gone. Neither of us have had encounters with our ghost dad since those first early on visits. There are, from time to time, little signs here and there that one of our dad's presence is in our lives, but I think our dads are probably feeling pretty satisfied in their ghostly matchmaking and are maybe now just off doing spirit dad stuff like fishing. <laughs> Thanks for hosting such a fun show. Jacob and I both love listening to your podcast and we'll sometimes cuddle up next to a campfire and listen to an episode or two. Thanks for giving hours and hours of eerie entertainment. Stay spooky. And if you need a ghostly matchmaker, let us know. Perhaps our dads can help you out too. Oh my gosh. From Abby and Jacob. Ah! That is the sweetest, most loving, and most romantical story ever. <laughs> so romantical. Wow. They sent pictures of their dogs, like the truck, them together, their dads. And I just love looking at the photos of their dads because I'm like, yes, this is just to, to picture these like big strong men just on the side just staring trying to scope out their their matchmaking skills i just love it that is just so sweet i'm i love it and to think that we started with vlad the impaler and look where we ended up oh what a heartwarming and very romantic story so romantic i love it it sounds like the fathers already gave their blessing yes uh, and i just imagine when they have children or if they want or if they get married, if they want, just their their dads both being there and offering their love and support throughout their whole relationship. It's just so special. Yeah. I love, too, that each of the fathers took an opportunity to appear 
for the significant other to have a moment to lay their eyes on yeah. their essentially like father-in-law, like their the love of their life's father. How cool. Wow. I love ghost stories. Me too. <laughs> That's what we're in love with. What are you in love with, <laughs> listeners? Tell us. Tell us. You can email us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. And there are a variety of ways to support us if you want to rate and review us on iTunes and acknowledge the fact that I know romantical is not a right word. That would be great. And Alexander Burr is not a real a person. person. <laughs> I acknowledge those things. And so now you can acknowledge us on iTunes rating reviews. Yes. You can also support us by following us on social media. We have Instagram, Twitter. We have a Facebook page that you can like a facebook group that you can join it's run by a wonderful group of moderators who do such an amazing job at making it a safe space alongside all of the twenty thousand participants in the facebook group i'm so like crazy. holy crap how who are all these people it's just amazing um to see everything there and just so you know there are a couple questions that you do have to answer to get into the facebook group so make sure you answer them so you're not just hanging out in the limbo we have merch which we will be coming out with some new merch soon. We're excited about it. Once it's up, we'll make a big announcement, but get ready. Save that money. It's going to be great. Real quick, I wanted to, Corinne, I want to say thank you to Eric Foster and Max at Upfire Digital. Thank you for editing our podcast. You're amazing and wonderful. And we're so appreciative. And we will see you on the other side. Very smooth.